He is the lawyer who represented the family of Nancy Cruzan in the first Right to Die case heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is attorney Bill Colby. Bill Colby is the author of The Long Goodbye, The Deaths of Nancy Cruzan, and Unplugged, Reclaiming Our Right to Die in America, which won the American Medical Writers Association Medical Book of the Year Award and is now out in paperback. Bill Colby, welcome back to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you very much. Good to be with you, Susan. When you listen to all the candidates talk about health care, what are you thinking? <laughs> oh, that's, that's an interesting question. You know, you remember the old Kevin Costner movie, Dances with Wolves? when he was a soldier, but he started joining with the Indians and more and more soldiers kept coming. And one of the chiefs said to him, you know, are there any more of these soldiers coming? And Kevin Costner shook his head and just said, oh, chief, you've got no idea how many are coming. I kind of have the same sense as we all talk about health care issues today, thinking about all the issues we've got coming as you see how fast technology is advancing and how quickly our country is aging. And then the third leg of that stool, the money to pay for the care that all of those people are going to want is not keeping pace with the increase in technology and and our demographic. I I just have the sense that our discussions on the topic of health care and how we move through that world today are going to seem fairly quaint five or ten years from now. I, I think there are a lot of really smart people working and thinking hard on these issues, but I think it's hard for any of us to predict where we're going and where we're going to be. What led to your passion for excellent end-of-life care? I was, as you know, the lawyer for the family of Nancy Cruzan the the very first time the U.S. Supreme Court tackled the so-called right to die. And, And one way or another, I've worked in legislation or representing individuals or public discussion on the issue ever since. And sometimes people say, gosh, you talk about death and dying all the time. That's got to be depressing. But I really find that I get the chance very often to talk with people who are at a point where they very badly need some advice and some guidance. So I, I tell them what I know, and I, I think it's gratifying when you can help people. It's, it's kind of how a lot of doctors I know live their lives. I mean, a lot of doctors spend most of their lives helping people. And I get to do that too. So I care deeply about it. I care deeply about the families I've represented. And I feel lucky that this is the area I get to work in. In your book, Unplugged, Reclaiming Our Right to Die in America, you discuss the evolution of CPR and a review of TV shows regarding CPR. What were these findings? I think CPR is a good example of the point I was just making about the technological evolution. If you start back in 1983 with the President's Commission report on biomedical ethics, they reported in 83 that there were three state medical societies that had recently adopted something called a DNR policy, a do not resuscitate policy, something we're very familiar with today, but it was new stuff in 83. We were just, as a medical society, we were just working to learn the R part, the resuscitation. The idea of thinking about do not resuscitate was far away. One of those groups reported in 83 was the New York State Medical Society, 
And at the same time they were adopting a DNR policy, the district attorney in Queens, New York, was doing a criminal investigation on a hospital that had a DNR policy in place because he thought they were improperly treating elderly patients. So we were just starting to learn as a society about these questions, and I I think that's where we are today. And the, the study you're talking about from the New England Journal of Medicine, a few years old now, looked at television shows like ER and others and found that CPR on those shows was effective about 75% of the time to the point that people walked out of the hospital within the context of a one-hour show. And as medical providers know, the reality of CPR is that it's not that effective. It's certainly effective in a useful procedure, but with a healthy population, it's effective about 15% of the time. And with the frail elderly, studies suggest that it's effective almost uh, never. Why is the full code a default position? Why are we performing CPR on the frail elderly then? Uh, that's a good question. And, and when, when I speak at medical grand rounds, I, I often have this discussion with doctors uh, about that exact question. And I think it gets down to basically, again, that we're just starting to figure out these questions. And full code has simply evolved as a practice in many places, having the discussion with a patient or with family about entering a do not resuscitate or do not attempt resuscitation order. That's a hard discussion to have. So often it gets put off until it's too late or the time has passed for the discussion. And performing the full code just becomes part of the ritual of, of, of serious illness and dying. Now, many groups are working on addressing that question. There are state legislatures and groups advising them who are looking at out-of-hospital and who have passed out-of-hospital DNR orders. There are these groups looking at a program that often goes by the acronym POLST, P-O-L-S-T. If you look at POLST.org, they have a description of one state's program, which is a brightly colored form that accompanies a patient from nursing home or home to the hospital, so written as a physician's order so people know not to attempt resuscitation. But again, I I think it's all part of our education, and a big part of how we learn is through the, the media, so it's educating about the effectiveness of CPR when we use it, when we don't. And um, a lot of people are working on the question. I I think it will be resolved, but it's a fairly new question in society in many ways. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me is Attorney Bill Colby, the lawyer who represented the family of Nancy Cruzan in the first Right to Die case heard by the United States Supreme Court discussing end-of-life care. Well, I I think both documents can be useful. just as a, a basic primer for people, I know a lot of people know this, some, some may not. The, the power of attorney document goes by different names in different states, but it's basically a piece of paper where you don't try to dictate what your choices will be other than to say, if I can't speak about my medical care, here's who I want to speak on my, my behalf. The living will type document is more one in which you try to anticipate conditions you might have and treatments you might or might not want. Sometimes it have, has boxes you check off or, or other types of um, ways to express that information. I only have the power of attorney document. I find that 
the documents are complicated enough and they're sometimes hard for people to understand, but people can understand the need to have someone speaking on their behalf. But it's pretty clear from the medical and nursing and social science literature that the piece of paper is only a, really a part and maybe even a small part of a much bigger discussion. And what you need is an advocate in the medical system on your behalf, someone, whether it be someone advocating for more treatment, less treatment, different treatment, but navigating the medical world of serious illness is a complicated process, even when you have all the information at your fingertips. So I find the best document, what I advise people, is to fill out the power of attorney for healthcare naming an agent, but then they've got to take two more critical steps. One is to talk with that person about these stories, about Nancy Cruzan and Terry Schiavo and Aunt Marge, who was in the nursing home, and any one of a number of collective stories we're all gathering. And then the third and critical step is they have to reach out into their family and their social circle to others who are going to be in the room when those discussions are had, including their doctor, and talk about what their views and values are so that the group can be supportive in working through these decisions, not as many doctors, of course, see far too often people arguing with, with one another. It's, it's hard enough when everybody is working together. So I advise people to take those three steps. What issues do you see us facing in the future around medical technology and end-of-life decision-making? Oh, that's, that's kind of where we started in a way. And I, the issues, I don't know. But boy, I'm very confident that the discussion is going to happen more and more as we go ahead. You, you hear everybody today talking on the airwaves and and see writing in different popular press about my generation, about the baby boomers coming, but but I haven't really heard anyone who's captured exactly what it's going to look like. I've got a picture in my mind of the old uh, George Romero movies, but this one will be Night of the Living Baby Boomer, and we're just, <laughs> we're just going to be everywhere. Most compelling statistic I've seen to illustrate the point, a Census Bureau says that in the year 2030, 44 of the 50 states will have the demographic makeup that only Florida has now. Bill Colby, thank you so much for joining us to discuss end-of-life care. Uh, Delighted to be with you again, Susan. Call me anytime. I appreciate it. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD library. Thank you for listening.